What's up, everybody? This is a Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. This is part two. Well, not part two, but the second live stream this evening. Uh, I got a double header for you, uh, as usual. Um, if you're on YouTube, do me a favor and thumbs this video up, subscribe and like, and all the things you need to do over there. If you're watching on Facebook, also subscribe and like. I would appreciate that. Uh, the algorithm isn't very nice to you if you do not want to pay them for <laughs> promoting you. So, you know, any help that I can get in trying to get these stories out would definitely be helpful, uh, if nothing else. So, uh, help a brother out. Uh, so this, this one I got tonight, uh, is Lynn Espeo. And Lynn reached out to me, or I reached out to her. She was she was directed to me uh, by another friend uh, in the space of um, you know justice uh, impacted justice reform, criminal justice reform. And uh, when I heard her, I, I talked to her for about an hour and a half, and uh, you know she we seemed to have some synergies in in, in a couple of different areas in our thought process of of how to uh, deal with um, you know uh, coming out of incarceration, the things that happen while you're incarcerated, and uh, she's really got an awesome story. So as soon as we get back here from the intro, we will get right into this. So uh, give me a second. And uh, we'll be right back. Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a longtime methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. Hey, Lynn. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, we had a long conversation the last time that we talked. Uh, it was, like I said, it was about an hour and a half. We really got into uh, in, into your story and into talking about the things that we uh, we kind of link up on and, and share the same philosophies um, when it comes to, uh, you know, the different ways and and that we can deal with uh reentry and uh, incarceration and how to change public perception and and all that good stuff. Yeah, that is that is true. We did we did hit on a lot of the same ideas. So, um let's let's get into your story and cuz you're not the typical uh person that goes to prison. I mean, you were really a straight-laced woman that you know, you were doing nonprofit work. You're a, you're, you go to church. Um, you know, you're into all of these things that you wouldn't even think of that would, you would find in a federal prison. So tell me, tell me about your story and how you ended up in that situation. Well, back from uh, 2007 to 2010, I worked for a group of doctors and I was, was asked to do things that um, I charged some stuff on my credit card. And one thing led to another. Uh, I'm not really sure how the federal government got involved. I do know that the doctors were doing some things that they shouldn't have been. So I'm not sure what really transpired. I never got the, the whole story of that. But at any rate, um, whenever... Um, I kind of got crossways with them. I was assaulted by one of the doctors. I had a lawyer involved. And before I knew it, the feds were involved. And I was being accused of things I had not done. I was their um, office manager, so to speak, administrator. And I had been one of them's uh, accountant in public accounting is how I had met one of the doctors. And they had taught me into coming to work for them. So I worked for them roughly four years before all this happened. 
And like I said, I had a lawyer involved and we tried to talk to them about uh, the assault. And the next thing I knew six months later, I quit. But the next thing I knew, I went out to my mailbox one day and there was a letter in my mailbox that said, you have been indicted. And I had been indicted in my district, the Eastern District of Arkansas, three days previous. Had no idea. No one had come to talk to me. No investigation. And so it just told me to report to pretrial. So I did what it said. I was arraigned. And that indictment happened on March the 2nd, 2011. On, um, that indictment went on for 14 months. The doctors I had worked for had destroyed um, all the financial evidence. And the assistant United States attorney that was on my case ended up dismissing that indictment in May of 2012. However, the federal government had actually seized money from my husband and I, our bank accounts. And I continued to fight them after the dismissed indictment for our money back. I reported the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Arkansas to Washington, to the OIG, to the DOJ. I, you know, did everything to report what they had done because I, I was an innocent person that had been indicted. I had found out that the Secret Service had lied to the grand jury and in order to get me indicted. And so I continued to fight them to try to get our money back. That went on until October of 2014 and they indicted me again. This time they stacked the charges. Uh, the first time I was charged with wire fraud. The second time they charged me with wire fraud, money laundering and tax fraud. And that indictment went on until we went to trial in um, January of 2017. And I watched how crooked the whole system was from start to finish. I watched how the, the prosecuting attorney, the AUSA, controls the entire situation. They, the government is able to vote people off the jury that would actually understand your case. So in my, in my particular example, they voted off every person that had any kind of financial background so that I was left with people that did not understand accounting, finances, anything that would have helped me prove the truth. And remember, I said previously, the doctors had shredded all the evidence. So they shredded the evidence that would have either, one, proved that what they were saying was true, or two, proved what I was saying was true. So, you know, I thought, surely a jury will understand that. However, when it came my time to put on my side of the case, I was blocked by the judge from telling the jury that. So I was not even allowed to let the jury know that all the evidence had been shredded, or I would have some things to show you that would prove I had not committed this crime. And so, um, you know, that was an eight-day excruciating jury trial where I saw the federal government use a PowerPoint and an Excel spreadsheet to convict me for a crime I did not commit. Um, I was found guilty of all charges on February the 8th, 2017. And, and honestly, I'll never forget that day. My husband, I, when the first, first charge that they read, they said, uh, guilty. I heard my husband start to sniff and with each count that they read and it said guilty. Of course, I was guilty of all counts. They found me guilty of all of them. I, I just laid my head down on the desk at the courthouse as soon as they said guilty one time. But each time a charge was read, it was it was excruciating sitting there hearing my husband in the back, you know, behind me. I, I couldn't look around. I just didn't even have the energy or strength after, you know, what I'd just been through. But I could hear him crying. And, you know, I think that's the that was the worst thing that day. It wasn't even being found guilty of a crime that I didn't commit. It was really more the heartache of knowing I was so numb after all this time of going through this that um, just hearing my husband, you know, back there sniffing. And I knew what a devastation this was to him as well. So um, that was in January, or that was actually February the 8th of 2017. On November the 2nd of 17, um, the, the judge did disallow the government's three enhancements that they tried to get. They wanted me to go to prison for eight to 13 years, but she did um, disallow those. And she did give me a two-level variance 
um, I had presented 165 character reference letters that people in the community wrote on my behalf. My pastor and several other uh, people went to court and spoke on my behalf at sentencing. And she did give me a two-level variance or else I would have got a lot more time. But I did end up getting sentenced to 45 months, which was pretty devastating. But given that the government wanted eight to 13 years, really not all that devastating. And so um, I started preparing at that point for federal prison. I did end up self-surrendering to FPC Bryan in Texas, in Bryan, Texas, on February the 26th, 2018. And I'll never forget the morning my husband and I, he flew me to prison so he didn't have to drive back because it was eight hours from our home. I'll never forget that plane ride. It it was, you know, the fear was overwhelming. I I did not know what I was, was going to be, you know, facing. I was honestly scared. Um, you know, I thought, here I am, I'm going to be living amongst a bunch of criminals. And And let me just say that that is so far from the truth. So if you have any listeners out there right now that, that are facing going to federal prison, I want them to know you're going to survive. You're going to be okay. You're going to meet some of the nicest people that you, if, if you're going to camp for sure, you're going to meet some of the nicest people that some of them will actually become lifelong friends. Uh, I have many of the Brian women that I still keep in touch with. And they were some of the nicest women that I have been, had the pleasure of living amongst. And while most of them were guilty, uh, most of them had just made mistakes. They weren't hardened criminals. You know, we're at a camp. They're nonviolent offenders. So it was nothing like what I expected. However, I'll never forget having to um, get an Uber driver. An Uber driver had to take us to prison. And so we're driving to prison and he's asking my husband and I, um, well, are you going to visit somebody? We're like, no. <laughs> well, um, do y'all volunteer there? Like he was trying to figure out why am I taking these? Hey, first of all, he didn't even know there was a prison in this town, a federal prison. But he's trying to figure out why am I driving someone to a prison? Right. And I finally had to tell him, well, actually, you're going to leave me and take my husband back to the airport because. I have to self-surrender today to serve a 45-month sentence. And he was like, they let people walk in prison? I was like, <laughs> unfortunately, yes, they do. So um, I served 24 months at FPC Bryan. During the time, I was not a fan favorite, staff favorite. I uh, blogged my way through prison on my blog, Inside the Walls, which I started before I went in. And it was really a blog I started out of the frustration of uh, being indicted and convicted of a crime I had not committed. But however, once I got inside prison and continued blogging, it actually became a way for me to make the public aware of the mistreatment of inmates, of how, you know, the BOP does not follow its own policy, how they are not held accountable how they don't do anything to rehabilitate the people that they are locking up. And as an educated person and, and someone who had, had led a decent life, I saw that the women that needed to be rehabilitated, that needed a way to go back out from prison and actually make a life for themselves that didn't have a husband like I did or a home to come back to. Uh, it really upset me that these women were not getting any kind of tools to go back out into society and do better for themselves. So I started, you know, blogging about that as well. I blogged about the fraud and corruption I saw that staff were committing at the BOP. And I was retaliated on for those things. I was thrown in the shoe several times. I was threatened to be shipped. I was, um, removed from the cosmetology program I was in because I refused to sign fraudulent paperwork that said I was getting hours I knew I had not um, gotten. And um, I fought for three months under the administrative remedy policy and got my senator involved. And pretty soon the BOP sent a staff member to make a deal with me. And the deal, they wanted me to dismiss all my admin remedy because I was writing them up for everything they were violating, trying to hold them accountable. And they would let me back in my cosmetology programming. So at the time, um, I kind of call it the deal with the devil. 
but I made the deal because it's kind of boring in federal prison and you need to have something to focus on. And being in the cosmetology program was like being in a salon every day, even though you were dressed in your, you know, drab prison khaki and things, you at least still were, you know, learning something, doing hair, staying busy. And it felt like you were kind of, um, outside of the prison for a few hours each day. And so I did end up finishing, um, that program, um, I did find out that they still turned in fraudulent hours uh, for me, even though I didn't sign off on it. And uh, I am currently cooperating with a investigation with the state of Texas into Brian's fraudulent behavior in their cosmetology program. So um, in during the month of January of 2020, I had, I, I, my two year anniversary of being um, at Brian was February the 26th of 20. But shortly before that, um, I had been thrown in the shoe again for blogging about the PREA violations that was going on at FBC Brian. Our chaplain was involved and other staff members. And uh, PREA, for your audience that may not know, is the Prison Rape and Elimination Act. And uh, guards and staff members are prohibited by law from having sex with inmates. However, that does not stop that from going on. So I um, had reported the PREA violations that were going on and I was also blogging about them. And I was called into the Lieutenant's office. There was a psychological staff member there, one of the psychologists. I was threatened. I was told that I needed to take back what I had said. And um, I told him I was not going to take that back. And in fact, I was going to go blog some more about it and that I had reported it to the mm -hmm. DOJ uh, under the um, there's a tab in core links in your email program that allows you to send a email to the Department of Justice to their sexual reporting hotline. And um, I let them know that I had already made that complaint, not only to the staff at Brian, but I had also made it to the DOJ around that same time. Um, I had asked to uh, move to Carswell to be transferred to another camp. And I was told because I had had a furlough with my husband, a social furlough a few months prior to that, where he came to Texas and I was able to leave the compound for 12 hours and then report back just like the day I self-surrendered. I had to come report back all over again. But I was told that he could come to Brian and drive me the 50 miles up the road to Carswell. About a week later, I was called to what's called pack out and I was put on Con Air, which is the U.S. Marshals air flight that transports prisoners all over the United States. I was handcuffed, belly chained and shackled. I was a community custody level, so I had no business being in that situation. But out of retaliation from Brian staff, I was put on airlift headed to Oklahoma City to the Federal Transfer Center, and I was not told where I was going. I guessed that it would have had to be Aliceville, and once I got to Oklahoma, I found out that my guess was correct because there's not that many women's facilities. And, you know, all of them were seven or eight hours from my house, but Aliceville was like 20 miles closer to my house than Brian. So um, I was put on, like I said, the, the airlift, and I was taken that night to um, Oklahoma City where I was uh, put in a cell. And, you know, I'd been at a camp, so I wasn't used to being behind closed doors. That was in Febu on February the 28th of 2020. Shortly after that, as we well know, COVID-19 hit. And it totally rocked the prison system and the BOP was not prepared for the pandemic. I was locked in a cell for roughly 100 days by myself. So I was in solitary confinement, even though I had done nothing wrong to be in solitary confinement. And um, we were let out during that time. Sometimes we went six, seven days without being let out. And there was no shower in your room. So, you know, you had a toilet and a sink, but not a shower. So there was, you know, days we went without showers. When they did finally get a schedule going, we were let out 30 minutes every 48 hours. So out of two days, I was allowed to be out 30 to 40 minutes for a shower, phone call, email, whatever I needed to do to communicate with my family. And that went on from March until May. Um, on May the 14th, well, uh, 
Oklahoma was not letting women out under the CARES Act. They were processing men out, but not women. So I filed an administrative remedy, a BPA, and I forced them to uh, file halfway house paperwork for me. And I was one of only three women that got out of, out of Oklahoma on the CARES Act. The other two had lawyers. One of them had been, got stuck at Oklahoma on her way back to Carswell because she had been to court. So the air, the marshals was support, was, you know, transporting her back and forth and she had got a sentence reduction. She was trying to get back to Carswell so that she could go home, but she got stuck there. So they let her out. There was another lady that she had just got compassionate release, nothing to do with COVID. Uh, it was to do with a, a situation with whoever was taking care of her kids had become ill and she had some small children and she had been granted compassionate release. But as of the, the inmates that got out on the CARES Act, I was the only inmate that got out that was female there. Although many, many men were processed out of there, which kind of highlights the uh, mistreatment of women in the system. Men get a lot better treatment of, than women. So um, I was given an out date of May the 14th. However, on the night of May the 13th, my husband had driven from Arkansas, where we live, to Oklahoma to pick me up. He was at a hotel room. At 7.30, I'd already had my last phone call with him. You know, in the prison system, we count down our last. Our last laundry, last phone call, last email, last stand-up count, you know, last prison meal, so on and so forth. I had had my last prison meal. I'd had everything my last. I was just waiting for my last 10 o'clock count. And then I would have been free the next day to go home with my husband. However, at 7.30 that night, a herd of marshals came to my cell. They unlocked the door and told me to get my stuff and come with them. So, and I knew something was wrong. I'm like, what's going on here? So they wouldn't tell me what was going on. And they took me and another female inmate out. And when we got out in the hallway where the other inmates were not able to look out the door, like out their windows on their door and see me, they put me in handcuffs. And they took me to the men's max security shoe, solitary housing unit. This is where uh, inmates who are not able to function in the uh, general population, meaning where all the inmates live, uh, for behavioral issues are taken. Fights, you know, other things that they do get them put in the shoe. I was handcuffed. I was taken to the men's max security shoe. I was placed in a cell. And I was told that I was not going home the next day. Um, I, no one would tell me why. I didn't know what was going on. My husband reported the next day to pick me up. And um, I did not get to talk to him for two days after that because I was in the shoe and they would bring you the phone to your and put it through your door when they wanted you to have a phone call. Um, I was being housed under the same rules as the shoe, meaning I was not allowed to have a comb, hygiene, anything, even though... I was not there for punishment. I was taken there supposedly for quarantine because when I got to finally talk to my husband, I found out they told him that I had not been quarantined by CDC guidelines. Therefore, he would have to report back in two weeks to pick me up. So I was placed in the men's shoe the last 14 days. It was a horrific situation. Men were hackling us. They were in adjacent cells to us. They had pulled a curtain across their cells, but that didn't keep them from talking, you know, to us or us hearing them. I mean, they're just a few feet away just because they pull a black curtain across their cell, you know, did not prevent them from knowing we were over there. And they saw us when we walked in, you know, we were paraded through with handcuffs and, you know, the whole nine yards. And so um, there was a shower in, in the, in the cell and, you know, toilet sink, all that. So for 14, the last 14 days, I lived in what I can only describe as a very chaotic situation where men hackled us, told us what they were doing to each other, told us what they wanted to do to us, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I came home on um, May the 27th last year of 20 on uh, under the CARES Act. My husband did come back to get me. When he got there, they turned him away again, told him I couldn't leave again. And I, I don't know, they had something messed up in the paperwork. Well, I was going off on them at that point. I said, I'm fixing to write you up. I'm, you know, this, this, I'm, this is not going to happen. And so the doctor, one of the doctors did not like it that we had been putting them in shoe to start with. She was very upset about it. 
So she said, hold on, Mrs. Fejo, just calm down. I'm fixing to do something. Because I, once I got put in the men's shoe, I started having panic attacks. My anxiety went through the roof with everything I was dealing with in there. And I started having full-blown panic attacks. And I, that was the first time that had happened during my incarceration. Um, I believe I had some anxiety during the times I was retaliated on by the Bryan staff. But I did not have, um, you know, full-blown panic attack at all. I, I, you know, I would, I would did pretty well. So she went and worked some kind of magic and pretty soon they came back and got me and they let me leave on a furlough that day. So I went home on a furlough the first day and was told to report to the halfway house the following day for an ankle monitor to be placed on me and that the halfway house would be monitoring me on my home confinement. So I was allowed to go to my home, not stay at the halfway house, but I had to go to orientation and get an ankle monitor. So I was on the ankle monitor for May until January of this year before uh, the BOP decided that they were not happy with me speaking out against them. So once I got home, I continued blogging. I did podcasts such (laughs) as yours. I did my own radio show. I was calling them out. I was on Twitter calling out the BOP for what they were doing to the inmates I left behind. And um, at one point in late December, right around Christmas time, Piper Kerman of Orange is the New Black, she retweeted one of my tweets. It was about a blog about Brian, about the mistreatment of inmates. And you can imagine it went viral thanks to Piper. And so uh, Brian took great offense to that. They uh, contacted my future PO, someone that was not over me yet, but my future probation officer. And they sent an email saying that I had hired a mobile billboard to circle the prison to bring awareness to the fact that inmates were not being allowed visits or to call home for Christmas. And while I did blog about that billboard, I'm not the one that hired it. But even if I had, I had not violated any kind of rule. However, they sent the the Brian staff sent an email to my future PO. And they knew very well it was future PO because I was still under the BOP. And they told them that I was, you know, talking to inmates, which which I was on core links, right out in public, using my real name, uh, not violating, violating any rule that had been given to me. So um, my case manager called me and uh, the PO had forwarded the email to the halfway house because she was not even over me at the time. And she was like, well, I don't see things she's violated, but I'm gonna let you know I got this you know, email. So my case manager called me shortly after Christmas and she was, you know, asking me, had I rented this billboard? And I said, no, but what, so what, what if I did? Um, And then she said, well, are you blogging? Because apparently Brian had sent a link to my blog as well. And I said, yes, I am. And I was written up for that when I was in prison. I beat that shot. I beat that incident report. Uh, It's freedom of speech. You know, you can't tell me not to blog. And she goes, well, okay. And then she asked me, had I been talking to inmates? And I was like, yes, I have. And I sent them Christmas cards as well. So she said, well, you can't, you can't be doing that. Um, And I said, well, what rule is that? So she couldn't really point me in the direction of a rule, but she was telling me, no, you can't do it. So I'm like, okay. So a couple of days later, it was time for me to do my radio show again. And she had told me that I had to have permission from the BLP. She told me that she would be getting that permission one way or the other. So I contacted her and she said, well, they haven't answered yet. And I said, well, my, my next show's tonight and I need to know, can I do this or not? And I started quoting policy to her, telling her how there was no policy that prevented it, that it was actually going to be a, you know, freedom of speech issue. I brought up the Michael Coyne case and I, you know, told her about how a court had already ruled that a condition of home confinement could not be losing my freedom of speech. But anyway, she said that the halfway house, uh, the RRM in Dallas, which was is at the BOP, which was over the halfway house, would have to make that decision. When I pressured them about it, uh, they came back and told me I was not to do the show. And I said, well, that's fine, but I'm going to make it public that you're preventing my freedom of speech. I'm going to follow what you're telling me. You're giving me a direct order not to do it. However, um, tonight when my show goes on, Larry Levine will actually go on my show and he will announce to my listening audience that I will not be able to do the show tonight because the BOP is once again retaliating and trying to block my freedom of speech and my rights. And I will 
appeal this all the way to Washington, I told him. So I, um, I went on about my business. I did not do the show. That was on a Friday. On Tuesday morning, I received a call from the director of the halfway house. Uh, that was on January the 12th of 21. I was told to report back within two hours that the U.S. Marshals would be picking me up and they would be taking me back to prison and that I was being violated from the CARES Act. I was placed in the Pulaski County Detention Center in some horrific conditions that made Oklahoma look like a five-star hotel. And I um, was there for 14 days waiting on DHO to um, talk to me, the the disciplinary hearing uh, officer, which is the BOP, to decide my fate. I'd already looked at what my fate would be. I knew that they would probably uh, retaliate by taking 30 good days so that my outdate would change from May the 4th to June the uh, 3rd of 21. But, um, you know, I physically, I, I mentally prepared. I mean, I, I didn't cry. I wasn't upset. I was kind of numb, but I just said, you know, okay, God, here we go again. Like, obviously I haven't seen everything I need to see. Like I've, I've been to prison for a crime I didn't commit. I flew on Con Air. I've been to horrific conditions at Oklahoma. I've had to fight the BOP every step of the way with admin remedies. Uh, what else could I be needing to see here? But okay, I'm, I'm on your journey. Here we go. What the BOP did not realize was that back in December of 20, I had filed a, uh, for a reduction in, in sentence, uh, compassionate release motion. And I had asked that my judge allow me to get off the ankle monitor and go directly to probation to supervise release. And the reason was uh, when I self-surrendered to prison back in 18, 2018, I was one internship and one class away from having my master's finished in mental health counseling. And I wanted to finish it this semester. So I had asked the court uh, for that reason and for the reason that I had been requesting counseling from the BOP due to the anxiety and PTSD I suffered from, from what they did to me at Oklahoma, I had been requesting counseling for months and still had not got any. And so I provided that information to the court and along with my school schedule that I had signed up to go back to, to grad school and was proposing that I be allowed to do so. On the 15th day of being in the county, the BOP, it's still not taking me before the disciplinary hearing officer. They just had me sitting there. They were violating their own policy because they only had 14 days to do so. But um, anyway, I was told to pack my stuff and I was leaving. And I thought, oh, well, I guess they gave up and knew that their shot was faulty anyway. And I was going to fight it all the way to Washington. I'd already told them, you're in for a fight. I'm going to fight it. So I... um called my husband to come and get me. And he let me know that the, actually the federal judge had granted my compassionate release and given them till three o'clock that day. She granted it the previous day, but she gave the BOP till three o'clock that day to let me go. So I went straight home on, uh, without going back to get an ankle monitor put back on. So I've been on probation or supervised release as it's called in the federal system since January. I was able to call my instructor. I was two weeks late. For class because I'd been, I was supposed to go, I was supposed to start school on January 13th and the BOP made sure I got locked up on January 12th and they had to approve me going back to class. So they knew, they knew all about what they were doing. So I called my instructor or my uh, advisor and he went to bat for me. He put me back in my two classes I needed. And on April the 30th of this year, I graduated with my master's in clinical and mental health counseling. So I'm now working towards getting my license as a mental health counselor, as a therapist. Well, congratulations on that. That's well, amazing. Thank you. Thank and, you. And I want to say um, I did it with a 4.0 GPA too. Woo, woo. There you go. Give myself a little props there because I, listen, I worked hard to keep that 4.0 through indictment, jury trial, uh, waiting to go to prison, um, during that whole course of that going on, I was in class getting my master's. So I'm very proud of the 4.0 that I can. Yeah, that, that's amazing, man. Um, and you know, one of the things that I, I want to ask you, and, and that's, that whole story is, is crazy. The, you know, the, the lengths that they go to, to try to, to, you know, 
punish you when you know your rights. Well, I didn't even tell you about how they harassed my husband, tried to get him fired. He's a CPA. They went to his work, uh, threatened to indict him. Uh, I didn't finish telling you that, you know, the $50,000 they stole from us, that uh, at the end of it, my husband still had his claim on it. And the U.S. Attorney's Office sent a message to him through my attorney that if he kept fighting for our money, that guess what? Uh, he would be indicted, too. And at that point, he saw what I'd been through and he knew I wasn't guilty. So we were like, uh, you can keep the money. We don't need two people in prison. But so there's a lot more to my story. And I welcome your readers to go to uh, my blog. It's out on WordPress, Inside the Walls. And I started blogging a long time ago about my case. And they should probably read some of the shocking things I'm not going to be able to tell you on this show. Yeah, no, for sure. And I have, I'm going to put, uh, I have a, li- a direct links to that actually too. Um, what is it? It's, uh, it's inside the wall, wordpress.com. There we go. Yeah. So what I, I want to ask you something with the, so you had a, you had a, an idea, well, not even an idea, you, you know, you, you thought that the, the justice system really was about, you know, justice and, and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, what, whatever that they tell, you know, condition us to believe it's about, that was you, right? Oh, I truly believe. I figured, my husband and I always said, even though this went on for so long and it was so devastating to our family with it being in the paper and, you know, you can just imagine two professional people, but, um, I truly believed when I got to court that the nightmare would end. However, little did I know the nightmare was just beginning. At at one point during trial, even uh, when the government was putting what I call their dog and pony show on with their PowerPoint and, you know, just things that were not true, but really, you know, looked believable. I literally leaned over to my attorney and said, if I didn't know the truth, I think I might would believe all this. Like I was getting nervous because it, they made it look so real and, and everything they were saying, you know, I, I was in shock that they, and the thing is what the American public are not aware of, you know, I went to the grand jury during this time. I was not allowed to have a lawyer present. You're not allowed to take one to the grand jury. You're just up against a prosecutor with no, you know, lawyer. Um, what I learned also from a jury trial was, you know, besides the fact that they vote everybody off and just keep people they want on the jury, it's the government's theory of the case. It's, it doesn't have to be factual. It's what they say happened. And, and that's the thing they put in your, you know, your pre-sentence report and everything that follows you through the BOP. It's just what they say happened. There's no, no factual evidence, maybe even backing it up because like I told you, all the evidence got shredded. And it, it's just, it's unbelievable to me that they can just get up the government, our government that's supposed to be for us, my taxpayer dollars pays their salary. They can just get up and be crooked. We we caught the prosecutor hiding evidence. We caught the IRS agent sharing our tax returns with other people. I proved this to the judge we did in pre-trial trial by having testimony of people that came forward that the email was even sent to with the tax returns, proving that the IRS agent had lied on the stand and said that wasn't true. And then we go, well, hold on, let's get this witness. And the witness, you know, tells everything. But the judge did nothing. Nothing happened to any of them. They There's there's immunity for prosecutors. There's nothing will happen to them. The IRS agent, I, I don't know. I reported him to, all the way to the OIG, the Office of Inspector General. I don't know that anything ever happened because he kept being an IRS agent. So I, I seriously do not believe the government is capable of policing their self. And so, you know, you just, the whole system, and I know you and I talked about this in our phone call where I say the system is broken and you said, but no, the system is not broken. It's operating just like it was designed to do. It's just not a good system. And there's a lot of truth to that. But when you start, when you're a person that believes, truly believes in our system and you think, when I get my day in court, this nightmare is going to end because I can prove the truth. Nobody that's innocent is going to go to jail, yada, yada. You know, and then and then you find out your whole family changes the way they look at the system. I mean, no, my family does not look at our system the same. There's no way. My friends don't look at it the same because they know I didn't commit this crime, yet I was forced to go 
served time at a federal prison. And they were forced to come and see me there. I had friends uh, from church, friends that are just my girlfriends. My husband came ever four to six weeks to see me. My kids had to come there, you know, during this time. I was fortunate. I had people, a support system. I had people that were there for me. Um, unlike a lot of the women that I served time with, I had money on my books. My husband was able to do so. So I had a fairly uh, cush, if, you, if there is such a thing, prison life. And, you know, I had support that came. I had visits. You know, it's so hard for women that, that family turns their back on them. And one of the things that I think um, causes a lot of the anxiety and the uh, mental health issues that come from this, not only is the environment you're, you're thrust into, because for me, it was not like anything I'd ever experienced. Uh, prison is very loud. There are fights. There are, you know, people that you are forced to live in a room with the size of, you know, a closet with four people living in with four lockers. And some people do not have your same um, lifestyle or your same level of cleanliness or, you know, any we're just all from different walks of life and you're all thrust together. And so there are lots of obstacles to overcome. And I think. A lot of that is what causes some of the mental issues that go on, some of the anxiety, the PTSD. But the main part of it is the way staff treat you and talk to you there. I'd never been talked to in such a way in my life. I'd never been cussed at and called names, uh, called Kachina, you know, just hood rat. You wouldn't believe the things they called us. Uh, medical staff treat you horrible. I was allowed to get skin cancer when I was there, even though they had my medical records. And um, I was it was recommended by my dermatologist who had been removing precancer uh, cells that I go to a dermatologist every six months. Never once did they take me. I kept showing them spots and they kept telling me, mind you, these aren't doctors treating you. These are uh, physician assistants and there's no doctor there supervising them. So your medical health care is being decided by people that are uh, physician's assistants. And so you know, they don't care either. That's the, that's even the worst part of it is they don't care. They're, they're not like a bedside manner like you're used to having in the medical field. They, they are very, um, hateful to you. Um, they are, you know, you can't get antibiotic. You can't get any kind of medicine. They take women. I saw that women that needed psych meds were taken off their meds, cold turkey. So people go into downward spirals like that. And fortunately for me, I wasn't on any psych meds, but I was on a anti-inflammatory and they wouldn't even let me have that. And so it is, um, Pamela, actually, I, I am planning to do so. Uh, my husband keeps telling me about that. But, um, you know, the system is so messed up and it, it is from start to finish. And like I said, it's all about retaliation. It's not about rehabilitation. There is no, nothing, hardly any programming being given to people to prepare them for reentry. I was the reentry clerk when was my first job in prison. And what we were giving people was minimal. You know, people were not getting help even to get a driver's license or social security card or any type of identification even before they left back out of there. And, you know, you can't even open a bank account. You can't Heck, you can't even fly without identification. You you know, I guess you can ride the bus because the BOP, you know, paid for bus tickets to send people home when they left prison. But it, it's they're sending people back into society so unprepared and, and not everyone has resources to, um, you know, go and get those things. You know, people don't have a car waiting on them. People don't have a home waiting on them. They don't have a husband like I do who is supportive and was here waiting on me to come back and in our home that we lived in and with a car for me. You know, not everyone is blessed like I was. And so, you know, I just wish that that society would realize that, number one, we're not making society better by locking more people up. First of all, I would I would argue that any person that is a first-time non-violent offender should be serving time in their community, that they should be in rehab or whatever type of community programming that would be out there to help them actually rehabilitate and do something with their life. 
There was children I saw at visitation that would cling to their moms. It broke my heart. Um, you know, we're not making families better. We're putting uh, emotional scars and mental scars on children because we're ripping their, their mom away from them, their dad, and putting them in prison for nonviolent crimes. And it's, it's horrific. And it's creating a generational circle of mental health issues. And I think that um, what people need to realize is that if you are a nonviolent offender, you're going to come back into your your community at some point. They're going to be your neighbor. They're going to be your coworker. They may be a friend. You may not even know they have a criminal record. And we're not helping society when we're when we are actually making people worse than what they were when they went in. Because I didn't have PTSD, anxiety, any of these things. Even after two indictments in a jury trial, I didn't have those issues until I was in prison. So I think that there's a lot of things we could do better as a society. And I'm trying to use uh, my, my new degree to bring attention to that. I'm, I'm currently doing a series uh, on my Inside the Walls and Beyond page on Facebook uh, where I'm interviewing people and talking about the mental health issues. And one of the things that I just made public last week was we had the most drug offenders in the history of the last 30 or 40 years incarcerated at the current time and drug crimes have not gone down. So again, we're, we're over incarcerating people yet it's not helping with the, the crime rates. So what is it that prison is doing? What are we actually doing? Because what I saw happening in prison was people that did not have help out in the free world did not have anything to go back to and were not being shown what they could have or help to have things. A lot of them flat told me that when they got home, they would have to go back to selling drugs because that's the only way they could eat. They didn't have any way to pay their bills. And again, the BOP was not giving them a way to go out any better. So it's a really, really, really sad situation. Yeah, it it really is. And <clears throat> we had talked about this uh quite extensively, um honestly, and it uh I don't I don't see it getting any better until, you know, th- that's why I'm doing what I'm doing because, you know, as people that have been there and know what is needed, we have to intrude into that system. However, however we got to do it. And whether it's, you know, continuing to try to make public perception, you know, what it is by doing more podcasts, by, you know, creating our own media to fight the media that that is, you know, turning a different narrative as to what prisoners are like and, and what the whole thing is about. Right. Um, you know, it's definitely, uh, you know, our, our our reality in in the world has been inverted in, in a lot of different in a lot of different legs of, of, you know, society or, you know, industries, you know, what we think is really isn't. And what, you know, it's like little smoke and mirrors, you know, misdirection. Oh, look what we got over here. This is what's really going on, but it's this nefarious ass stuff over, over here that's really going on. And it's all driven by money. It's all driven by greed. It's driven by profit driven with, you know, different uh, corporations that are, are making millions off of yeah. slave labor. Absolutely. And off the phone calls and commissary and emails. I mean, people, it's funny how um, people believe that things in prison are free. Let me tell you, there is nothing free in prison. There is absolutely nothing free. And not only that, when you work, you're paid 12 cents an hour. So, you know, it was awful what I saw going on. Uh, you know, people trying to call their family just to keep up with their kids. And, not, you know, some people just can't afford that kind of, of, of money. You know, 22 cents a minute to talk to their kid. That may not sound like much, but if you start really adding all that up, I mean, that's a lot. And you had to have money for email. It's not free. Uh, video visits were 6 or $7 uh, mm-hmm. each time for 20, 25 minutes. So everything in prison, the commissary is really horrible quality. Uh, think about the dollar store and go down a few notches. And that's what commissary food is. And it was uh, real costly. So it's, 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 there's nothing free. And we even had to pay co-pays for medical that some people find that hard to believe 
that inmates were required, even though you're locked up and you don't get a choice in medical, you actually have to pay a copay to see the, the PA that doesn't treat you, that talks to you ugly, that doesn't give you any medicine. In fact, um, I had to write up medical. Uh, and then once I, they knew that I would write them up, they would, I would go up there and get, they would give me an antibiotic if I was sick or whatever. But other women were not able to get that because they weren't willing to write them up because they didn't want to get retaliated on like they saw happening to me. You know, they didn't want their locker tossed or they didn't want, you know, to be kicked out of programs or to be thrown in the shoe or, you know, whatever it was that they did to me at the time they they were too, they were too afraid, you know, uh, they didn't, didn't want to go through those things. They just wanted to, you know, they just took it. I mean, I heard so many inmates say, well, we're just inmates. What are we going to do? Like, that's just how it is. You know, they just accept that this is how I'm going to be treated and I'm just going to suck it up and do it, I guess. Um, I just, as someone who was serving time for a crime I didn't commit, I think that was what was on the front end of starting me to, to not like what I saw. But in the end, um, I started writing them up for violations on women that, you know, wouldn't speak up for themselves because what they were doing were, was just horrific to women. And um, right before I left Brian, by the way, they were allowing male guards to do shower checks on us to come into the shower and look in there to make sure we weren't in there with another woman. Cause you know, that does go on, but they were allowing men to violate our private space in the showers. And so, you know, I, I there was women there that had been raped, that had been sexually abused, had been, you know, all kinds of things. And can you imagine the mental trauma that is doing to them? And I wrote that up. I wrote that up and I turned it in uh, because I felt like that was really, really, really mental abuse to women who were already scared to death of male guards. And then they're being put in that situation when they're very vulnerable and naked in a shower. It's, mm -hmm. it's not right. The BOP has no accountability. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And we're going to have to do a part two to this one because I have to, I have another thing to run to. I'm, I'm being interviewed on another show at seven. Um, but I, I definitely want to have you back on because we didn't even touch on some of the things like the, you know, the misuse of the, which most of those women are in there on is conspiracy charges. Absolutely. Almost, I would say 90% of those Ghost women. Though. Yeah, ghost of conspiracies, and I would love to because I've I have ten interviews that I've I've had with women that are women and men that are locked up on ghost of conspiracies, and I'd love to do a documentary on that, especially that guy that's out of the Northern District of Texas. Uh, what's his name? Hang him high. Hang, that's yeah, who, my yeah. little bunkie. Mm -hmm. She's serving thirteen years. My, my the what you call your bunkie in prison. She was on the bunk above me. John McBride. I, yes, hang him high, McBride. Her name is Rhonda Rosales. She is serving 13 years basically because her husband was an addict. He probably was selling some drugs to support his habit. However, she never sold any. Her only crime is not kicking her husband, a drug addict, out of the house and admitting to the government that he had brought drugs into the home. They wanted her to cooperate against him. First of all, she didn't even know who he was getting the drugs from. She didn't have a way to cooperate. But because she refused, they they couldn't even get her with the conspiracy. They had so little on her. They actually charged her with running a drug house because uh, a drug premise because she admitted that he had brought drugs into the home and she did not kick him out. And she is serving 13 years. She's one of the sweetest people I have ever met. Very just very sweet person. And I really wish somebody that like Amy can do or somebody that has clemency power that people that know what they're doing would really help me to get her out. But she has no business being there. Her dad has died while she's there. Her mom is real ill and needs her home. Her kids need her home. It's, it's the saddest thing. And I just, my heart breaks. It breaks for her. Well, yeah. And then that's kind of what we're, you know, you're, you're on my nonprofit organization. Now you're on the board of directors um, and we're going to figure out how to, uh, do this, this, uh, justice impacted TV to go along with that and, uh, figure out some way to start, you know, blasting out all this stuff and, uh, you know, try to make a difference there. Uh, as My well goal as it, is to get before Congress, I want to talk to the people that make decisions and let them know what they're doing by locking people up like that. I want to show them what it did to my life. 
It doesn't matter. Even if I was guilty of the crime that they said I committed, I should never have went through what I went through. And that is that is the point I want to make. It, at this point, to me, it's not about being innocent in the system. It's about the system in general and the changes that need to be made for us to be, be a better benefit to society. And, you know, it, what we've got is just not working. And it's time that we admit that and it's time that we make changes and it's time that Congress steps up to the plate and makes some, some changes and to hold the BOP accountable for what they do, the mistreatment of inmates. Well, not only them, but also the, the you know, the, that whole uh, qualified immunity has got to oh, go. Oh, yeah. You know, to be able to to be able to do whatever you want without recourse or reprimand or any consequences whatsoever, even when you make a bad decision or you make the wrong the wrong choice or the, the you know, whatever it is that you do, there's no there's no incentive for you to do your job right. Right. And just like with us, when they seize the money. They used the Patriot Act. That act was passed after 9-11 to be used against terrorists. However, they're using that to seize money from American citizens. And once they take your money, your money is considered guilty until you prove it innocent or your asset. It doesn't just have to be money. It can be your house. It can be a car, any asset. And so they're taking that that act, the Patriot Act, that uh, was to be for terrorists, and they're using it to basically pad their own pockets because, by the way, they get that money for their budget. Some of it even goes into their retirement plans. So what incentive is it for them to be honest in that arena when they're going to benefit from it? Mm -hmm. There's no checks and balance for a U.S. prosecutor, for, for a U.S. attorney. There's no checks and balance for the FBI, Secret Service, whatever agent you're dealing with. There is There is nothing you can do when they mess up and do you wrong. And they do. Yeah, they sure do. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to throw up your uh, Pamela says, thank you once again for a great show. Thank you for listening, Pamela. And I got a couple of people in clubhouse, Miss Denise. Hello. And Irene, thank you for stopping by. Um, You know, we will be, I will be doing this on all of the broadcasts coming out as piping into clubhouse in a room. Um, But we're going to have Lynn back on because we've got a lot more to talk about for sure, because there's there's some things that, that, you know, got brought up that I I definitely want to dive deeper into. So, Lynn, go ahead and let everybody know where they can find you again. I'm going to throw your uh, blog, um, whatchamacallit, up here. Okay, my blog is on WordPress. It's called Inside the Walls. If you want to look me up on Facebook, look me up on Inside the Walls and Beyond. And of course, I'm on Facebook with my name. But, uh, you know, my email is on my blog site. If you need to email me, I, in fact, a lot of people find my, my blog and I've had people even write to me in prison. I've helped women from prison that were going through the system that read my blog and just, you know, reached out to me. But I do, uh, on a regular basis, people reach out to me for help after finding my blog. So if you want to reach out to me, feel free. I always try to take a minute to help somebody if I can. And feel free to reach out. All right. And then Alex uh, chimed in with watching on Facebook. Loved your story. Thanks for sharing. Thanks, Alex. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. We're going to we're going to get out of here. And uh, everybody, thanks for participating. Thanks for listening. Lynn, thanks for coming on the show. And we will have you back. Uh, and also, too, look forward to some other shows that are coming up. My, If you've been following my story, my, you know, you know that I, I – uh, lost uh parental rights to my daughter uh when it was, she was 18 months old she's now 21 and we've reconnected and actually her mom reached out to me not too long ago and I'm going to have her on the show on the 23rd and awesome. that's going to be an interesting one because it's going to be me listening to how I affected somebody while I was in my addiction wow so, I mean, these are the kind of stories that I'm telling. And, you know, transparency and authenticity is the one thing that I can guarantee you that you're going to get here. And, uh, and I'm not, I'm willing to, to bring people from my past and, and, and listen to what they have to say and not argue about it because I have no right. You know what I mean? People need to be able to get that kind of closure or right. at least, you know what I mean? That, that, that loose end that's out there needs to be tied up in some way. Well, thanks for having me on tonight. I really appreciate it. And look, what you're doing is great. Keep doing it. It takes a village to bring attention to all this. And I think we just all have to keep being a voice and just putting it out there.
I encourage other people also, if you're out there listening, you could be a voice too. Absolutely. Thanks, Lynn. And uh, I'll be in, I'll be in touch with you because I got to send you that uh, welcome letter and everything else for the, uh, the, the, the meeting, the board meeting uh, this month, the first one, everybody's going to be together. So looking forward to that. And I will be in touch with you soon. Thank you. Good night. Good night, Lynn. Everybody else, uh, thanks for checking everything out. Thanks for stopping by. And uh, as always, keep it 100. Stay true to yourself. Everything else is just noise. You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.